0: This is the High With Confidence podcast brought to you by People To You. Formula One is reaching fever pitch in Australia this week as we welcome the world's best motorsport drivers to Melbourne's Albert Park Grand Prix circuit and we're super pumped to be speaking with highly regarded businessman John O'Rourke. Currently, John sits on the Australian Grand Prix Corporation Board and is well qualified to provide insight on the event's significance to our economy. On top of this, he currently holds the role as founder and chairman of global infrastructure company Plenary and recently took over the reins as president of the Richmond Football Club. People to use accounts and business development manager, Ben Tucker, will also be joining the show. So let's get into it and welcome both Ben and John.
1: I'm sure you know, there's, there's many, many cities that love, would love to be in our position of having you know an F1 and an Australian Open and, and everything else we do right here.
0: I'm your host, Rebecca Miller, and on behalf of People to You, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. It's so good to have you here. How are you today?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me, Beck. And Ben, nice to see you again too.
2: Thanks, John. <laughs> I'll nice see you, mate.
0: We might chuck to Ben just to introduce himself and how he knows John as well.
2: Yeah, so uh, my name's Ben Tucker and I'm the account and uh, business development manager at People2U. Uh, i have been with the business for 12 months now and um, coming into uh, labour, hire and construction industry is a bit of a different change of pace from my career. I worked in sport for the previous uh, probably eight to ten or nine years prior to that. Um, prior to working here I was at a talent agency for 12 months and prior to that uh, coincidentally as a couple of other people in the room I was working at the Richmond Footy Club for uh, near on seven years actually and got to know John and Trish and um, the family quite well through the Coterie Network of the Richmond Footy Club so Looked yeah, after great to see you well. again Oh great to hear you.
0: Let's jump straight into it, let's turn to the Grand Prix which is this week, Fever Pitch is hitting Melbourne which is super, super exciting Tell us, why is it so important to have an event like this in Melbourne and Victoria?
1: Well I think you, if you're a believer in the economic benefits of major events for melbourne which i am then the grand prix you know at the top of the list it's a global event it's a unique event it's an elite event and it's one that's highly sought after around the world so i think you know the benefits that it brings to melbourne just in terms of yes visitation to the event but also the branding and the marketing of melbourne back externally and Particularly in, you know, the, the climate for F1, the appetite for F1 is, is bigger than it's ever been. So, you know, a really exciting time for Melbourne to, to have the event and to have secured it for the long term.
0: Talking about appetite, you're on track for a record attendance with 450,000 or so.
1: It's incredible numbers. You know, it's just uh, I'm, I'm relatively new to the board of the Grand Prix. I've only been on uh, for a year or so, which was you know, sort of post-COVID appointment by the Victorian government who asked me to get get involved from a more commercial perspective and boy other sports I've been involved in but to see tickets being sold uh, in a matter of you know minutes and and hours across the event just is testament to just how popular uh, F1 has become there's a lot of factors you know uh, driving that interest in the sport but the sort of wider interest that's coming from you know your core sort of traditional motorsport base it's now much you know it's a much more celebrated premium experience uh event and, and female participation is another huge factor I think in those numbers that from what I can gather in his historic terms you might have expected 20% of your tickets to be sold to uh, a female audience and it looks like that number sort of double now it's mo- wow. more like 40% participation you know obviously the the Netflix series, and uh, you know, that has showcased the intrigue and the celebrity and the you know the stories that come out of a competition that has only ten you know ten yeah. teams and twenty drivers. It's pretty. Um, it's a unique elite sport when you think about all the other big events where you know they're big fields and, and straight and open. And, you know, there is a, a lot involved, but you are only talking about. 20 drivers at the very top of the sport so you know it's ruthless but it's intriguing at the same time and I think that's attracted a huge uh, new audience to the sport
0: yeah that drama like I know I've watched (laughs) the series and it's just every episode is full of drama yeah so um, I'm not sure have you watched it Ben?
2: I haven't actually uh, watched it but uh, I've got a few days to go this week where maybe I can squeeze it in (laughs) series one I've heard is Absolutely hooks you season one, so yeah, yeah, we've got to get onto that. Yeah, you better get your skates on if you're going to do that before next weekend. I've got some time to binge watch it this week, so we'll see how we go. John, obviously you touched on the economic impact of what the event brings to Melbourne. Our work and what we do, we're obviously in the business of providing jobs, and um, that's really our why of what we do and why we exist. Do you have an idea of what sort of the amount of jobs this um, event might provide sort of year-round, but then also in the lead-up to the event as it scales up? Oh, look, it's it's many thousands of jobs, you know, and... and we're obviously, you know, an inner city
1: street circuit that gets rebuilt every year. So the logistical exercise and the construction exercise exercises, again, are, have been a huge eye-opener for me, just, you know, how big a project it is every year to build this facility. I think the economic benefits each year, they do an independent economic study that shows the net benefit. To the economy, and I think last year's figure was 170 million, 171 million, I think it was. I, I, I actually, I actually think that's a low num, low number on its face in comparison to other things I've seen. I think it'll be a higher assessment this year with the amount of uh, visitation coming to the site. But in terms of employment outcomes, there's permanent staffing, and uh, it's you know it's a year-round exercise to to bring this event together. But in terms of subcontracting and uh, short-term work around the the build and then the operations of uh, of the event, so, you know my, my guess would be that would be you know well into the ten to twenty thousand number of uh, wow. employment effects you know across the supply chain for something like this.
0: That's pretty uh pretty mind blowing. Mm. Yep. Fascinating. Can you give us a bit of insight into what are the planning sort of things that you guys do for this event year round, from the board right down to the individual person, you know, cleaning the track?
1: Yeah, well, it, it, well, I guess, I guess from a, a board perspective, it's, it's, it's an, it's an oversight and governance role, and it's, it's really sitting back in great admiration of the incredible work that goes on from the CEO down. I mean, the, the logistics exercise is, is massive. From last year's event, you know, they were in review mode immediately after the event and then in planning mode you know pretty much straight up and and obviously leading into this year with the appetite for tickets and how are we going to accommodate the bigger bigger scale of numbers so there was a significant increase in grandstand building in hospitality big focus on improving the customer experience from last year when it reopened COVID and the numbers were large and probably larger than expected puts pressure on you food and beverage and your toilets and all your supporting infrastructure so teams um, has made some good presentations to the board about what additional investment do we need to make to make sure that the customer experience is you know is, is is matching the brilliance of the of the event so huge effort and focus has gone into that in the last few months but I mean the eye-opener for me is how hard people work uh, how, how passionate they are and committed it's, it's like coming into anything relatively new you, you don't have a great appreciation for for the people it's the people that that drive it it's got a you know ex- excellent uh, executive team there under mm. Andrew Westercott, it's his last after many years as CEO he's retiring after this event or by the middle of the year but you know he's he's across the detail like uh, like an in, in incredible in an incredible way and a, a, a great team that's uh, under him so for their sake I you know I hope it all goes smoothly later this week
0: and what does you know the four-day event look like for you you know there's obviously glamour on the grid Wednesday night into the four day event what does your schedule look like
1: we'll be there at the event for for four days and yes there's multiple side bars I mean our, our job as a you know as a board is to just give encouragement when it comes to the event to support the team but also to host uh visitors and you know it's a it's a huge event event for the state and for victorian government so um you know we'll have different schedules of making sure that people are you know just loving the experience and and getting out and about and um and seeing how the whole thing operates so it's going to be a fun time (laughs) (laughs) bring it on i say yeah
0: well with 20 drivers 10 teams and 58 laps in your opinion john Who do you think is going to take out at the Grand Prix?
1: No, obviously Red Bull just look, you know, so superior, a very fast car and, you know, they'll be um, Verstappen will no doubt be a raging favourite. But I think from the interest is obviously in Oscar Piastri, the Australian on his home turf. I think uh, it's well publicised. He's had a tough start in the first couple of races for events probably out of his control and uncertainty about the car. But we saw a bit of a glimpse of what he could do in the qualifying in jedi mm. and uh you know i think with a with a bit of luck i could see him earning points which i think it'd be it'd be great for the um for him and great for the australian crowd to to get in behind him with that
0: yeah i know we'll be getting right behind oscar that's for sure and he's also a richmond tigers man too yes
1: yeah he came he, he did come to the game last year when he was uh here as a reserve and he came along to our um Richmond Bulldogs game that weekend I I doubt we'll get him along to Richmond (laughs) Collingwood on Friday night (laughs) but uh, yeah good tiger man.
0: And uh, Oscar's one of five Aussies debuting at Albert Park Grand Prix Circuit so we wish all Aussie drivers the best of luck for their events this weekend. Moving on to your, your day job I guess as founder and chairman of Plenary can you talk us briefly through how Plenary grew to become one of the world's best businesses?
1: Well, I'd better give you the short story. We could be here for quite <laughs> quite a while. But look, we set up plenary in 2004. So we're coming up for 20 years next year in, in business. Congratulations. And, but prior to that previous decade, myself and a couple of colleagues were in investment banking and we were essentially lending and underwriting money for these types of uh, infrastructure projects. So in the sort of 90s when mainly state governments started to look to the private sector to help with infrastructure agenda. And we got onto the back of that pretty early and said it was an opportunity, long-term assets that would be attractive to the bank's investors. So we sort of set up a business that started to bid for some of the early, what became known as PPP, public-private yep. partnership projects. So, and, we, and we did that very successfully for, for over 10 years. But we were a bank and, and a bank's job an investment bank's job is to sort of underwrite and make the project get up from a financial point of view, but then you had to sell it and move on to the next project and re recycle your capital. And and I just had the view that um, whilst we were very successful at doing that, the projects themselves were becoming much more complicated and much longer term and the government were more sophisticated in what they wanted to get out of it and they wanted to transfer a lot more risk across to the investment partners so uh, our view was if to do this properly now you had to move beyond just doing the deal up front you needed to be invested in the success of the project over 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 a long period of time and there was no one else really doing that in the Australian market it was made up of um, building contractors and and the banks. so the small idea for plenary was to be uh, moved to being a, a developer and investor in projects and then manage them over a, a long period of time, so the the pitch was we'll be there alongside the government partner for a twenty five thirty year period. So we got off to a fortunate, well not 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 so fortunate. We decided if we're going to do this, we're going to have to go in large because yeah. the large projects were on the horizon and we were a startup. We had some good bank backing from Deutsche Bank as it was back in the. Back in the day, then to get started, and you know we just started bidding for projects, and we were early days successful in winning the Melbourne Convention Centre, New Melbourne Convention Centre project, which was which was probably way above a startup's capability, but we were in there and we did it, and it <laughs> sink was sink or swim. Hey? It was sink or swim, and and in hindsight, we were very fortunate that was the right way to go because we got it done. It was it was a huge urban renewal project that got our credentials up. It's been a very successful project and it immediately just put us onto a onto a platform that then pretty soon allowed us to start expanding and grow, growing the team and growing into other other states initially and then and then into the uh, international markets we went to Canada fairly quickly thereafter so that's the story of how we sort of got Got going, and yeah, here we are today. We're represented in you know in that core infrastructure space in 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 most of the sort of PPP markets that are you know that have evolved in the world over the last fifteen years or so.
2: And what type of projects were you working on in the North Americas, John? You touched on Canada, but I think you've gone into the USA as well. The idea was relatively straightforward because Canada is identical to Australia. Like everything that
1: happens there, the weather's a bit different, but. <laughs> the whole ecosystem of infrastructure and government and projects and contractors and finance and the law and, you know, it's such a familiar place. So it was an obvious place to go and and they, the Canadian governments visited Australia and saw it as an example of where they needed to go and they were just a few years behind where we were. So we were able to get in early with our experience in Australia and Particularly in healthcare, they had a big agenda to um, rejuvenate the Canadian health system, old decaying hospitals, and that's that was really the early pitch. So, over the years, I think we've done about 16 hospitals across Canada. The U.S. was much more challenging because the U.S. is—you well, were recently there, yeah. Beck—but it's every state's different, every city's <laughs> different. Uh, You're not wrong. So, you know, we took our time in expanding into the U.S. We, we with our, from our Canadian base and, and the leaders of the business in Canada researched the US over, over a number of years and it probably took 10 years before we really decided that there were certain states that we could expand in and that's that's now happened. and again now we're, we're very strong and successful across four or five targeted jurisdictions in the US.
0: Wow. Very cool. Just to peel it back a little bit, we were a bit of a start-up almost in the early days, where did your sort of start thinking skills and capacity come from? Was it... Nature, nurture, or was it your investment banking learning days?
1: Um, I think a bit of all of those things. I mean, I was, I was already quite old, you know. When, I, when we started, we'd been, I've been at it probably working for twenty years or, or so, and you know, had, had seen a lot. You know, been through a lot of ups and downs as well in in business. So I think I had a pretty hard edge to saying, you know, you have a go at this, and it could fail but if if it fails it's sort of okay because you've already done a lot and mm. you you've got things you just go back to doing what you were doing and it won't be the end of the end of the world so you know I think we and and my and my partners as well had a similar attitude was that um we we're, we're going to do this and we're going to be prepared to fail and it won't be you know won't, won't won't be the end of the world because we'd we'd already done a lot whereas if you were just start any and, and I, um I really admire people that just have an enormous crack from nothing at a you know, very young age and throw themselves into things. And it's going to take years to, to get there. I guess we, we had the advantage of pretty established yeah, yeah. business and sort of, you know, we had mortgages
2: and houses and things,
1: but we were, you know, we were just, okay. we were going okay.
0: That's fascinating. Thanks. So I just wanted to ask that question.
2: One of the areas that people to you is focusing on at the moment is um, some of the rail projects which are going on here in Melbourne. Currently got some mechanical fitters that are working on the Metro Tunnel project. Obviously, Plenary's got a fairly significant history with rail works. Keen to just understand what that looks like from your perspective. Read up a little bit on the high-capacity Metro trains that you've worked on. Could you give us a bit of background on Plenary's work in this space? It's a bit of a sore point for us because the, 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 your people are working for... Um our competitors. We we were the oh losing
1: God. bidder. We were the losing bidder for Melbourne Metro, which is which is fine. These you know you, you win and you lose. They're tough experiences, long you know long processes, and we yeah we weren't good enough to win that bid. But we subsequently bid for and won and won the project to deliver the rolling stock for that project, which is which has been a fascinating uh, project, quite a different project to coincide with the big investment in Melbourne Metro. It's like how do, how do we now. Leverage. We, we need trains, obviously, to to run on the on the new lines. But how do we leverage the investment in the metro in terms of job creation and local capacity for manufacturing? So the project was a, of appeal to us because it required us, as the developer and equity investor, to bring in a number of component parts and put it into a package where the governments, you know, set set the rules to say we we want 60% of the of the trains to be local content and that's you know quite stringent tests that they're doing so we've got a consortium where you know different aspects some is coming internationally some uh, is being done to domestically but to achieve to achieve that and to build new trains essentially here in melbourne and to see them you know they're they're up and running and they're on schedule and they'll be you know they're already in service or about half the trains I think are in service so um it's well on track to uh to deliver on the uh, the metro project, but you know the rail rail the big projects, big big employers. We're heavily invested in rail up up and down the eastern seaboard. We're we're doing the um, Sydney metro project, and we've just been awarded the project to do the uh, the rail from the new Western Sydney Airport, which will integrate oh, into the metro wow. system. That's that's incredible sort of um, foresight and thinking on the part of New South Wales. We're doing the light rail project on the Gold Coast, which is currently at its in its third stage so we've done stage one and two and three and there'll be a subsequent stage four we hope to the um to the airport on uh on the gold coast so you know rail up and down the eastern seaboard these are enormous investments by the states the australian governments uh you know it's, it, it really is on a global scale how much we're spending across those projects yeah
2: and what about more broadly? So obviously, we know in Melbourne, we've got a sustained period, 10, 20, 30 years of major infrastructure works. Um, have you got any insight into just how exciting that is, particularly what it means for Melbourne, but as you just touched on, Australia more broadly as well? Yeah, look, look the, the
1: pipeline appears very strong in Melbourne. Obviously, the, you know, the immediate financial constraints is a big issue for governments and for taxpayers and for investors around coming out of COVID, the, uh, the capacity to You know, to keep allocating capital to these big projects is probably, you know, going to be challenging, so you're going to have to really be uh, careful at picking the right projects that make most, you know, sense from a value for money point of view, From, from our business point of view for for us we see the next big phase in melbourne is you touched on the population it's around the social infrastructure that's going to be needed to support that so coming back to your hospitals education you know the university sector's got you know a lot a lot of potential there so you know in these big booming population areas out in the western suburbs of melbourne there's a you know a couple of big healthcare projects that we're in, involved in so uh, you know, those those things have to naturally follow if we're gonna be a you know, big sustainable city of, you know, six, seven million people, that's huge by global standards. So we're we're sort of following that trend that we think we're we'll doing more social projects in Melbourne than the, the heavy infrastructure transport. That that's already well and truly in the in, in the pipeline.
0: And how can businesses pair to get in front of projects, the social infrastructure projects you're talking about?
1: Yeah, well, it's a it's a long game, you know. I think something like the big hospital projects that you know the ones that the ones that do well and get up are usually the ones that have been in planning for ten years or more. They, they, you know, occasionally you'll get a project that you know is a bright light for someone. Just think of a, a a great idea and it's out there, and we're not prepared and workforce. You know, possibilities are probably not prepared, but you know, I think you can track and. The supply chain and the subcontractors from a building perspective and their labour force, you know, they should be well aware of some of the big spending, big ticket projects that are, uh, going to be there, you know, probably, you know, two years in advance of when it, it's ready to come to market. So there is, you know, I think it's good opportunity for businesses, big and small, to really position themselves to be able to. You know, take advantage of those opportunities. Still very competitive, and yeah. the, you know the government process is very competitive. So you've got to be sharp to be able to get in, and you know you're not going to be you're not going to win these things by being
2: lazy. But being well prepared, you know, that really helps. <laughs> and do we need to be prepared for? You touched on the west of Melbourne. Is is it all gearing towards strategically prioritising the western suburbs of Melbourne? Well, that, I mean, that's where the huge population.
1: Growth is. I mean, it's every, it's right around the outer ring of Melbourne It's obviously huge residential development. But if you if you looked, I think at where perhaps uh, an underservicing of healthcare, for example, we're currently doing the uh, new Footscray Hospital. You know, it's a billion dollar mm. plus project. So about you know probably not before time. You know, it was uh, un- under resourced and poor facilities that's servic- servicing that inner ring. But they're already now. You know, the government's looking out to Melton where you know, another very substantial hospital project, they say, is, is you know, is needed to service the, all of those suburbs that are building up in that corridor, you know, out to out to Werribee and beyond.
0: You sort of mentioned as well the post-COVID era. Do you think we're ready within the labour market for what's to come with all the infrastructure and there's also potential financial hard times on the horizon?
1: Yeah, it's, well, I think it is going to be challenging mm. in terms of labour force requirements. So I think, you know, it's going to be a good time for people to get jobs and, and and hopefully get well paid jobs that are um, you know commensurate with the st- strategic importance of of what these projects are, are going to deliver but if if you add up everything that's out there you would see there is going to be a shortage of uh, of key you know skilled workers in the in the trade so obviously unemployment's very low at the moment, but I think, you know, the the opportunities there and the, and the need will be there to continue to upskill our workforce and, and that's going to have to be supplemented by uh, overseas workers as well and, you know, p- migration and, you know, international students that sort of underpin a lot of the supporting sort of networks for those jobs is really important too. So um, if it all happens, <laughs> like most places in the world, it's going to be very challenging, but with it, you know, with it comes great opportunity as well.
0: Yeah, which is also yeah. pretty... Exciting. Yeah,
1: but you know, financial hardship. I know, you're talking about a cost of living, and yes. yeah, just the individual yeah. pressures are, are you know acutely there. I continue to be amazed just at the resilience of the local economy. I, I keep expecting that this has got to have some impact with costs, inflation going where it's, uh, interest rates you know going where, and 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 it has to come through at some point in time, but. Gee, uh, when I look at the concerts that are sold out, the football crowds, the F1 attendance and restaurants, and yeah, you know, I'm not sure. It's just seems, Melbourne seems to be incredibly resilient.
0: One more question about plenary. I'd love to know, I guess, what skills or experience have you taken from plenary and implemented as your current role on the Aus Grand Prix board?
1: I think the Aus Grand Prix was, was more about um, an understanding and appetite for what makes big cities even better. And it's good planning. It's urban renewal. It's great experiences, and doing things that are quality, long-term focus. I mean, I think that's our mantra at Plenary. We're, we are in a very competitive bidding environment, but we're doing things that are long-lasting. You know, we're trying to do things that not just to win the projects and present that it's going to be a great outcome long-term, but our you know our investment case is based on a sort of twenty-five, thirty-year horizon, and that means you need to make decisions up front that are not just for the For the sort of sugar hit, it's to say, you know, make this sustainable and work. And, uh, you know, I'd like to think some of those experiences will come to bear with the Grand Prix. You know, the beauty of the Grand Prix with the state having secured its tenure for a long period of time, you know, gives the board and a new CEO the opportunity to think strategically about, you know, how do we really optimise this Event now we can sort of invest invest in it for the longer long term, knowing that the security of tenure is there, and um, you don't have other cities that can, you know, snapping away at your heels to try and <laughs> steal the event. <laughs> How hard have they come, John, for the event? Oh, look, I'm I'm not that close to it, I, but I, I just think just generally globally being an incumbent is good because you know everyone everyone wants to get on the back of it. I think the other big thing in F1 is the popularity in the US with the drive to survive and. Liberty Media owning the F1. When you overlay the growth in the US, and they're going to have three races this year, so they've gone from one to three in a short period of time. So there's not a lot of room left in the calendar for more expansion. So being in there and having it, it's 23 races this year, and for Melbourne to be one of those, you know, there's there's many many cities that love would love to be in our position of having you know an F1 and an Australian Open and and everything else we do right here.
0: Because I believe it was Andrew's government last year, they've signed on to 2035 for having the Australian Grand Prix here, which is great news for the local economy.
1: Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's going to be fantastic yeah, to have that tenure.
0: That's a wrap for part one of our chat with John. Part two will be dropping soon, we promise. You're a busy person, so thanks for listening to this episode. We appreciate you. If you liked what you heard, why not share it with your mates? Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss part two, where we speak to John about his plans as the Richmond Football Club's new president, the impact Brendan Gale and Peggy O'Neill have had on the club, plus a whole lot more. People to you. People for here, there, anywhere.